Father, again, as always, we come before you knowing that it is through the power of the Word, Father, that we may be changed and we may be grown into your image. Lord, we go back into Luke again this morning, praying for even better opportunity, Father, to know you and to know the work through your Son that you purposed in this world. Bring these events from times past and places far away to rest here in our hearts, Father, to be real and to be tangible, something, Father, that we can see in our mind's eye and understand more clearly. We pray, Father, that, this, that the Spirit would be the one speaking this morning and all that we do would be according to your will and to your glory. In Jesus' name, again, I pray. Amen. And we left off last week looking at two women, Elizabeth and Mary, at opposite points in their lives, one old, one young, one seeking a child after many years of never having had one, another receiving a child she never expected to have. And Elizabeth, we thought, knows that this is a miraculous birth. In fact, she gave God credit in her faith for the child that she received. And Mary, we know, actually heard that her child would be miraculous through the angel. And she responded as likewise in reverence and in submission. And then at the very end of last week, we heard the angel tell Mary, nothing is impossible with God, and in fact... Your relative, Elizabeth, is now with child six months pregnant. And we know from what we studied last week, that was such a miraculous thing that it not only demonstrated to Mary the fact that God could do what He said He could do, but it gave her instant encouragement because she now had somebody she could turn to who could identify with her circumstances. The miraculous nature of this birth, the, the, the kinds of experiences she was going to share now with Elizabeth were going to be one-of-a-kind experiences. And as soon as she hears that Elizabeth is expecting. Mary does the natural thing and rushes off. Let's look at Luke 1, verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how it has happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby left in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Well, remember, Mary lived in Nazareth. We mentioned last week, Nazareth is a very out-of-the-way, backwater little town. Geographically, it's located a considerable distance north of Jerusalem, in the very northern part of the region of Judah. In fact, as the crow flies, it's about 64 miles from Nazareth down to, Judah, down to uh, Jerusalem, the city. Now, we're told that Elizabeth and her husband, Zacharias, they live in the hill country. No, that's not here. This is the hill country around Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits in a re region of mountains, sort of high up on a plateau within the re uh, mountainous region. And all around Jerusalem for some distance, are the hills of the mountains until you get down to the broader plains, either, toward the mount, either going toward the Mediterranean or going toward the Jordan River. So if they lived in the hill country, that's like saying they lived in the suburbs. And that makes sense. To actually live in the city of Jerusalem was a fairly rare event. In the, in the time of David and even in the time of Herod, the city is relatively small. If you have a map in your Bible that may depict the actual city itself at the time of, of uh, Jesus' birth, you might take note of just how small this place was. It was probably not much bigger than downtown San Antonio. So 
the actual city itself didn't allow much room for people to live in the city unless they had some money or unless their families had lived there for some time. So it's natural for them to have lived somewhat outside the city, maybe as far as 10 or, or even 15 miles outside the city. That wouldn't have been unusual. So when you hear that Mary gets up in a hurry and travels directly to see Elizabeth at the point when she hears of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it's easy to read that and just brush right past without considering what it really implies. It means that with very little preparation, probably with no planning, Mary walked about 60 to 80 miles and probably did it in about four days. Most people in those days walked about 20 miles a day if they were used to walking, and as they probably were for the most part. That's a four-day journey. So how, do you, how excited do you think Mary was? How, how, how excited do you suppose she was to go see Elizabeth? Excited enough to get up and walk four days' journey like that to find Elizabeth. How much do you think she believed the angel if she was willing to do that? And as I think about her doing that, I have to stop and wonder for a minute, did she have any other plans that week? You know, did, did she have something scheduled? Did she have to be somewhere that week? Didn't she have some things on her calendar that maybe were getting in the way of getting up and leaving like that? You know, did she wonder how she was going to be cared for on the way and while she got there? Did she have anything she'd be leaving behind undone? I mean, what are her friends going to think? She just ups and leaves like that? What a rash thing to do. You know, another man did much the same thing, a man we've already studied, a man named Abram who, while living in Ur, got a call to go to a place that I will show you, and he left everything, and he was even told to leave his family. You see, when, when God takes hold of your life, when God reaches into your life and actually speaks to you in a way that you know it's God, whether it's an angel or whether it's through some other means, and He awakens you to His work and He tells you you're going to be a part of it, well, your interest in normal life is naturally going to drop. Your, you know, that calendar you had that was so important, it will suddenly become instantly the case that all those worldly activities you thought so much of, you suddenly realize are worth nothing because they're all a part of a natural world that's just going to burn up one day. And instead of investing your time there, you're going to say, I want to go where God is going. I want to go where His work is. He's called me and now that's what you find important. And the things that used to consume so much of your attention suddenly aren't on your mind at all. God's replaced them. You know, I think back in my own experience, there was a time, though it's hard to remember at this point, there was a time not long ago when I wasn't teaching anywhere to anyone. And what's striking about that to me is, do you know how many hours of my week have been displaced? And this isn't a complaint, don't hear it that way. you know how many hours of my week have been displaced by the teaching I now do? Hundreds of hours a month. What did I do with all that time? Do you know I can't think of what I used to do with all that time? I can't name you one thing that I used to do with all that time that's meaningful. I must have filled my time with all kinds of nonsense. Now, would I like some of that time back? Well, sure. My point is not so much that being too busy with the Lord is really where you want to be. I think my point is, do you know how much time is in your calendar right now that, to be honest, is worthless? I mean, I'm you, so I'm saying it from the standpoint that I... I know what it's like on both sides, but do you really, if you're really honest with yourself, do you know how much time in your calendar is being spent, invested in things that are going to burn up one day and show no value in, in eternity? Mary probably had a life like many of the women she knew in her day. And God reaches into her life at one moment and says, you're going to have the Messiah. And she says, 
whatever I'm doing today doesn't matter now. I'm walking 80 miles to go see another woman who's obviously involved in this plan. So how do you do that? How do you become a Mary, if you will? How do you actually change what you're doing every week so that what God is asking you to do becomes the priority? Well, obviously you have to listen to God. You have to hear His instructions. You have to take them to heart. But you may be tempted to say, okay, that's easy to say, Steve, but you know, Mary had an angel. Mary was pregnant. Okay, if God makes me pregnant, I'll go answer His call, right? I mean, is it... But you know, let's be honest. Many times uh, we do hear from God. Many times we know what God is telling us, and yet we just aren't in the habit of listening, much less responding. And it's not that we don't want to take the radical steps that Mary took in the case of this story or in, in the case of so many other Bible characters. It's this, we have reasons why we don't, don't we? We have reasons why we can't. I had reasons. Matt came to me one afternoon in my house and said, I have an idea. Why don't you and I and another family... Well, he didn't know about the other family at the time. That was a bonus. He said, why don't you and I start a church? You know how many reasons I had in the moment to say no? Tons. Chief of them was, that's weird. (laughs) Normal people don't do that, Matt. But God knew better than that, and He held my tongue, fortunately. But there are always reasons. There are always reasons. You know, I could tell you that we should spend more time in study. We should spend more time in prayer. We should spend more time generally in reliance on God. That's all fine and dandy. But you know what the number one obstacle is? At least it was for me. And if I'm representative of you, then maybe you can learn from me. In my case, it was time. We're too busy, right? You've heard preachers tell you this before. I can tell you firsthand. We have busy calendars. We have action-packed lives. And the shame of it is that we pass that on to our kids. The shame of it is not so much what we're doing with our time, as I see in my own family's case, it's how we pass that culture of busyness into our kids. We, we, have, you know, we have kids that have three sports, two club activities, two musical instruments, and by the way, no more than four sleepovers a week. You know, that's a, that is now the culture that we live in, all of us and, other, and those we know. We're driving our kids, I think, much like we drive ourselves, right? To be completely absorbed in the life of this world, forgetting that as a Christian we are to behave as if we are foreigners in this world, knowing it is all passing and not worth anything. I think about the Finchers. If you guys had gone to China, knowing you were going to be there for an extended period of time, but yet knowing you weren't citizens of China, that you were one day going to return to the land you do call home, what would her life, what would his life have been like in China? To some extent they would have integrated, but I guarantee you anyone who came along and saw them would have known they were foreigners, and not because of the way they looked. That because of the way they live, they wouldn't have become Chinese. They would have simply been foreigners living in China. That's how we're supposed to be in this world. We should not look like to the world we're comfortable here. That's hard. That's hard to do. How much better would life be? In fact, how much better would a life be for our kids if we remember what David said in Psalms 46.10? Cease striving and know that I am God. I can't think of two words that when you put them together are more counterculture than those two words. Cease striving. That's completely counterculture. And you cease striving because you know He's God. What does that mean? It means you know He's on the throne and He's working in this world and His will will be done and you don't have to work. He's doing the work for you. What if we taught our kids that same principle? How far would they go with it? We could all learn from Mary and I think we recognize that when we give Him space and we let Him direct our steps, we will hear from Him. And when we hear from him, nothing else is going to matter, just like Mary. 
There'll be no doubts. There'll be no need for excuses. We can just respond and start walking like she did or like Abram did. But it's, it begins by recognizing that we can't own this world. And so Mary, it says, arrives at Zechariah's house. And at the sound of Mary's voice, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, it says, leaps. And then we hear that she's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an important passage. One of the, in fact, I use this passage quite often in other classes. First, it's important to note here the Holy Spirit is featured prominently in this passage. Throughout this passage, the Holy Spirit is going to be featuring, featured prominently. And so there's several things I want you to note about the work of the Holy Spirit. First, remember that angel who came to Zacharias in the temple? One of the things he told Zacharias back in verse 15 of this chapter was that the child that he was going to receive through Elizabeth was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in the womb. And so, it seems that at this point, the passage we've just read is probably the point at which that occurred. The promise was given back in verse 15. The occurrence, I believe, is happening here. Not only is the baby being filled and it leaps, but so is the woman herself, Elizabeth. The child we know is reacting to Mary and to her presence and to her child, to the future Messiah. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth brings forth from her speech that praises Mary and praises the child. In fact, Elizabeth calls Mary's child her Lord. Even before the child is born, Elizabeth is acknowledging that the baby in Mary's womb will be her Lord. That is an utterance inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded by Luke here. It means that she believed the promise that Mary had received about her own child. But her entire outburst here seems to have occurred before Mary said anything whatsoever to her about the fact that she was pregnant. Did you notice that? I don't think it's just the way Luke records it. I think it's actually the way it took place. I think Mary walked into her presence. There was the, impre- the, the bringing of the Holy Spirit, the child leaping, and Elizabeth reacting, her words being driven by the Holy Spirit. And I don't want you to think she's possessed and she's just standing there and she can't help herself. I mean it in a more natural sense. Words came to mind and she instantly owned them as her own and she spoke them. That's how the Holy Spirit, I believe, worked. And it's obviously the case Elizabeth wouldn't have known just by looking at Mary that she was pregnant. She's four days pregnant at this point. There's no outward evidence. So we have to conclude it's inspired. This is one of many examples in Scripture where the Holy Spirit works in the lives of men and women to do God's ministry, the Father's ministry on earth. In fact, the Holy Spirit has always had a ministry on earth. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? The Holy Spirit is seen hovering over the waters of the deep. From the very beginning of creation, the Holy Spirit's had a ministry here. Later in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit, we are told at various places along the way in the Old Testament, will come upon men. He came upon Saul, but then he left Saul. He comes upon David. He always comes upon people for God's purpose to give men power or wisdom or revelations or prophecies. But it's always a temporary thing. He will come upon a man for the purpose of what God sees to to be done through that man. And then once that ministry has been met, the Holy Spirit would depart. It is not a permanent indwelling in the Old Testament. In the case of utterances, like with Elizabeth here, you remember, you may know the story of um, uh, Balaam in in chapter 24 of uh, Numbers, where He's trying to curse the Israelites and he's um, been ineffective because every time he opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and instead of cursing, he blesses. You may know that story. It's said specifically in that point that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. That's an example of what the Holy Spirit's doing here with Elizabeth. 
But the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a unique aspect of the church. Who's the church? Well, the church is anyone since Pentecost who has been a believer in Jesus Christ. We alone have the unique opportunity in all of God's history to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a permanent way, in a non-stop way. Christ told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would baptize them after his ascension, meaning at Pentecost. That's what begins this new period. You can call it the church age if you want to give it a name. Elizabeth's experiences seem consistent with the Old Testament manner of working of the Holy Spirit in that he's come upon her now, he's given her this speech, but there's no indication he's going to remain with her. The second aspect of the Holy Spirit I think you want to notice here is that the Holy Spirit's primary ministry is to glorify God, in particular to glorify Christ, in this case through Elizabeth's speech. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. He's here to do the work of the Lord, but in specific ways to glorify Him. So how does He cause men to behave so that God receives glory? If He's indwelling each of us, and His ministry is to glorify God, how are we a part of His effort to glorify the Father? Well, by our sanctification. The more He conforms us to His image, the more we reflect Christ, the more we glorify Him. Look at what Christ says in John 16:7. He says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Speaking of His coming death and resurrection. He says, If I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Right there, if you want a simple verse that says, what is the purpose and the role of the Holy Spirit, take John 16.7 through 16.11, write them down, take them to a Bible study class and impress your teacher. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He says he has three roles in glorifying the Father and the Son. First, it says he brings conviction of sin. By convicting you of the fact that you have sin, you're glorifying the Father because you're demonstrating an appreciation for your difference compared to His holiness. You're giving, he's giving the world an opportunity to understand there is a holiness that we are not equal to, and it is God's holiness. We are short of it. We're convicted of that difference, convicted of sin. Number two, He brings about righteousness, it says, in believers. And that's what we just mentioned, sanctification. Concerning righteousness, He says, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. If you wanted a picture of righteousness in this world right now, where would you go? You have none except as Christ Himself set that example. But in terms of a living person, there's no one we can see right now that embodies perfect righteousness. That's why He says, the Holy Spirit is going to be doing the work of righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. So in His absence, the only picture we could possibly have of righteousness is that which He brings into the lives of believers. As a believer is sanctified and looks more like Christ, the world has a picture of righteousness that it wouldn't have had otherwise. Finally, it says, he testifies to coming judgment. In other words, one of the, the third role of the Holy Spirit is to demonstrate to the world the fact of a judgment. How does he do that? By signs and wonders. Signs and wonders appointed by God. In, and that's especially going to be true in the end times. As we approach the end times, we're going to see increasingly signs and wonders which reveal the coming judgment. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, where in here do you see the teacher role? You know, Christ said, I will send you 
one who will teach you all things. We know it's through the Holy Spirit we understand the Word of God, for example. Where does the teaching role come in? All three. All three. When He teaches you about the Word of God, you're convicted of sin, you conform yourself in Christ's image and become a picture of righteousness, and you learn the facts of judgment and grace. It's, a fun, it's an underlying function of all three that He would teach. But then the final aspect of the Holy Spirit visible in this passage, the final piece of his ministry is probably the most profound in this passage, and it's the one I turn to so often. Paul taught in Romans that the definition of a Christian is anyone who has the indwelling of a Holy Spirit. If you guys want to have a, a fun question and answer session with any Bible study, adult or child, try this on. Ask them what the definition of a Christian is. It'll be one of the most fascinating discussions you've ever heard. I've used that quite commonly now whenever I teach, particularly in Revelation, because you'd be amazed at the variety of answers you get. There's one given in Scripture, only one. The definition of a Christian is given in a couple of different places, but it's always the same definition. Here's one example, Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Paul goes on in 8:14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Sons of God meaning the children of God, Christians in our day. To be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit. It is the defining line. No indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not a Christian. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian. Ephesians 1.13 says this, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then... Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. You hear what Paul's saying? You were, you were included in Christ. You were made a Christian. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul says, as we believed in the gospel, we were marked with this seal, the Holy Spirit, the whole thing came together, we're now in Christ. Okay, so if the Holy Spirit comes upon men as a seal of their faith, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit came to John the Baptist in the womb? What does it mean then that we hear that the Holy Spirit comes upon John the Baptist while he's in the womb? Well, the first thing you understand is it confirms Ephesians 2, 8-9. through 9. It confirms these verses. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. The syntax of Ephesians 2.8 makes it very clear that the gift of God is not grace. That would be redundant. A gift, grace is by definition a gift. No, what was a gift was the faith. Listen to it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, but a gift from God. The opportunity to understand and believe is itself a gift. The gift we all received was our faith. It was a supernatural moment when we believed in the gospel because our belief in God was a product of, of faith He gave us. He acted first and we responded. That's a simple way to put it. 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It requires the Holy Spirit to even say those words. Alright, well the second thing John's indwelling means is that God is not dependent on intellectual capabilities of the believer in order to provide the gift of faith. I mean, that is an in... You can't help but come to that conclusion. Did John in the womb intellectually 
consider the gospel message, rationalize it, determine it was truth, decide that he was going to accept it, and then made a commitment to Christ, and then God gave him the Holy Spirit. Was that what happened in the womb? No. I mean, obviously not. God is not dependent on our intellectual capabilities and capacities in order to provide the gift of faith. Since it is a gift, it comes as a matter of God's power and His right to give it without regard to our understanding. We, it's a challenging notion in the world we live in today. I will grant you that. We are surrounded by world views and church views that have left the truth of Scripture as it applies to this issue. That is a fact. But the Bible is clear. We don't think and reason our way into salvation because that would be a work and we would have right to boast. But So that no man may boast, faith itself is given to men apart from intellect. Although we do disclose our faith to others as a product of our bodily function. Having been given the faith, I express it. I commit it to others. I make a statement about it. And I've used the example of a headache to you guys many times, right? Headaches come upon you. Once you have it, you say, I have a headache. But that doesn't mean you created the headache when you said the words, I have a headache. It was a response to a change that happened inwardly outside your control. And God says we are to make that response. We are to confess with our mouths and believe with our heart. We are to be baptized. There are actions He expects from believers. But we've made the leap and assumed that those actions are what produce the faith itself. Those scriptures says very differently. So John the Baptist was given the Holy Spirit prior to birth, and in so doing, God proves that He's not dependent on John the Baptist's understanding. You know what's really cool because of this? You know what implication you draw from this? All those fundamental questions people have about, well, what about the baby who dies as an infant? What about the one person who's born an invalid and lives their whole life in a vegetative state? What does God do with those people? He can do the same thing with those people He did with John the Baptist in the womb. Whatever he wants. And if he wants to give them the gift of faith, he's not limited by the nature of their physical state. Because he created that physical state in the first place. He's not limited by it. But when we say that faith is a pure intellectual effort, that it has to be reasoned out, that we have to think it through, and only when we have the capacity to do that do we have the opportunity to be saved, we deny the real power of grace and where it originates and who's behind it. Do you notice that God always talks about faith with respect to the heart? Never the head. Never the mind. But do you think God knows that this organ is not the place of our mental activity? Do you think He knows that? Do you think He got confused somewhere along the way and started talking about heart when He meant head? No. He changes the heart because He wants you to understand it is deeper than what we do up here. It is not controlled by what we do up here. Though it influences what we do up here. And that is the message I think I can take in part out of what I see him doing with John the Baptist. Any theory, any philosophy you want to teach someone about the nature of salvation and where it originates, go for it. Just make sure that John the Baptist's experience fits within it. And if you can accommodate John the Baptist within your theory of of salvation, great. But if you can't, then you've got to work on that theory a little more. Because John the Baptist's experience stands as a testimony to God's power. Before we move to the next passage in Luke, I want you to look at how Elizabeth addresses Mary. She says that Mary is mother of her Lord. Now, that's not the same thing as saying Mary is mother of God. You know, the, the faith traditions out there that would say Mary is the mother of God, 
are distorting Scripture. Scripture never says that. What Scripture says is, Jesus is God, but not all of God is Jesus. And therefore, Mary is not mother of God, she is mother of the Lord. She is mother of one-third of the Trinity. Mother in the sense of the one given the blessed opportunity to carry the Lord to His birth. Then in Luke 1.46, Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regard for the humble state of His bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy. And He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Well, now it's Mary's turn to give an utterance inspired by God and praise of God. It's kind of hard to know whether she had worked this out beforehand or whether this was truly inspired in the moment like it was with Elizabeth. In either case, it's inspired It's also interesting how many of the phrases she uses you can find in the Old Testament. In fact, most notably out of Psalms, she quotes a number of different Psalms in this this Magnificat, it's called. You know, even if the Spirit brought these things to mind, which is probably the case, it's probably worth noting that God receives glory and praise when we speak His own words back to Him. Daniel and I have had this conversation on a couple of occasions with respect to the music. You know, how... What would make what is acceptable praise music and what is not acceptable praise music? How would you define that standard? Well, it's got to be played with an organ. There's some that think that. No, it's just whatever people like. We just want them to feel comfortable. Well, that's dangerous, don't you think? At some point it could be misused. I think the only safe answer to that question, as I understand Scripture, is the more Scripture that's in the text you actually sing, the better. Because there's one pure way to praise God, and that is with His own words. God Himself says a primary requirement of worship is that it would be in spirit and in truth. Whether it's teaching the Word, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in music. The more His Word features prominently in that, the more glory you're giving to Him. Consider this for just a moment. If there are any collection of the English language, you can make an infinite number of phrases and sentences and words out of it, right? Well... Consider, are there any better collection than the ones God Himself originated? Can you, could you mix the English language into words any better than the ones God Himself chose? I would argue by definition, these are the best sets of words you could possibly imagine. Why think of new ones, I guess is my argument. Why look for better ways to say what God has already said, the best that can be said? If you're looking for a way to praise God, go to His Word. Another thing I like about this passage is that Mary just gave, this praise that she just gave, it can help you refute a common heretical teaching concerning Mary, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church. Mary, as we know, gives birth to Jesus while she herself is a virgin. And since Christ was created as the second Adam, He is not a product of Mary physically. He's not a product of of Joseph at all. And so He does not come into life carrying the original sin of Adam. He is created anew in the same way that Adam himself was created. We covered this, if you remember, in previous teaching. But the Roman Catholic Church goes one step further, and this is where they get it wrong. 
They will claim that Mary herself was born free of original sin. That she as a woman did not carry the sin of Adam. And I believe the reason they've come to that impression or that belief is it helps them understand how Jesus Himself could be born of Mary and not carry original sin. In their mind it is, oh well it must be that the woman herself didn't have any original sin to pass along. But of course it doesn't necessitate that at all. The way that Jesus was placed in her womb is clear out of Scripture from the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need Mary to be without sin. And the way, the way this passage refutes that teaching is the way Mary, at the very beginning, praises God, praises her Lord, and calls Him what? Her Savior. Calls God her Savior. If Mary was born without original sin, she'd have no need for a Savior. Just as Christ Himself had no need for forgiveness of sin. Instead, she acknowledges her need for a Savior, and so do we all, which implies clearly she suffered from sin and needed a Savior as much as the rest of us. This woman was not without sin. She was a normal human being. But she didn't pass that sin on to Christ because He was not created from her. Finally, she mentions all the great things God's doing and has done for Israel and for the world through the gift of His Son. And she calls herself blessed for all time. You know, it's nice to think as we pass along and move to the next series of passages, it's, it's nice to just consider for a moment every Jewish Orthodox girl who had ever been brought up since the time of the promise of the Messiah had gone to, to, to a marriage hoping she would be the one that God would use to bring the Messiah. You know how girls here grow up to be Miss America or princesses or maybe president now. I don't know what the latest dreams are. But in their day, in their culture, the thing every Jewish girl wanted to do is be the one to carry the Messiah if you were orthodox, if you cared about such things. Mary has just found out she is going to be the one who receives this treasure. She's won this lottery, if you will. She is the one. And so she is overwhelmed with admiration and with joy. And then it says she stays long enough, three months, long enough to probably wait for the birth of John the Baptist to see Elizabeth to conclusion of her pregnancy and then leaves. And now Luke's going to transition to an account that concludes the story of Elizabeth and Zacharias. And this is a this is kind of a nice ending for their part of the story. Luke 1.57 Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy towards her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, he shall be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. What do you want him called? What, what name do you want? for the, They're making signs to, John, to, to Zacharias. He asked for a tablet and he wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. All right, Elizabeth and Zacharias have their son now and the family and the neighbors have all been praising God. I mean, remember, this is like grandma coming home from the hospital with a newborn baby. This is remarkable. And they're all giving God praise. How wonderful is it when God's graciousness in the lives of His people results in the praise of His name? Isn't that what we all desire to see? On the flip side of that, you know, if I'm out with a group of guys playing basketball or whatever and somebody uses the Lord's name in vain, gosh, it hurts. It's funny how I didn't even do it, and yet every time I hear that word, it's like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me now. It used to be, I was the one saying it. Now I, it bothers me terribly when I hear someone do that. 
I don't necessarily want to correct them in the moment if it's not a good opportunity, if it's not going to be received well, but, but yet you wish they would stop. In this case, it's exactly the opposite. When God's name is praised because of what God does in the lives of believers, it's a wonderful thing to share in. And how much better is it when the blessings He pours out on us result in praise by others of God? That's the ultimate. Where we're not just the ones praising, but our lives result in others being able to praise God. That's what we should all be seeking after. It's important for us to impress upon those who we know how much God has done for us and then give them examples to follow in how we give credit to God. Every opportunity we can, give credit to God. And at the eighth day, we're told under Jewish tradition, just as God gave it to Abraham, they go to circumcise the child. Now, Jewish tradition is split on this. Some Jewish tradition called for the naming of the child on his birthday when he was actually born. But there were some other variations that were a little looser. They would often wait until circumcision to name the child. This is obviously the case here. Now, naming the child was the father's right. right? The father was the one who had the right to name the child. And it's understandable, of course, the woman would play a role. The mother wasn't absent any influence, of course. But typically the father had the right. Now, since this is their only child, and I think it goes without saying, everybody who was there in the moment, they knew this was going to be the only one. This is it. I mean, you got lucky with this one, Elizabeth. Don't count on number two, all right? This is your child. And it's a son, which was very important. So their only child, their firstborn only child would be a son. So naming this child was a big deal. It was a big deal. And the natural assumption among all the family and among all the friends is, under these circumstances, it's a given. He's going to name him after himself. It's Zacharias II. It has to be. That's just the only thing that makes any sense. Now, you remember, the father can't speak. They can't speak to this guy, and so their first inclination is to go to the mother, thinking that these two probably already have a plan. I'll just go to her and ask her, confirm it's going to be Zacharias, because I'm not going to try to talk to this guy. I can't talk to him. She says, John, that throws them off. And then they decide, well, if it's going to be John, maybe we should go to the father for confirmation. Does he know what she's about to name his son? It's curious to me that when they go to the father, how do they talk to him? Gestures, we're told. Wait a minute, what happened to the guy in the temple? He's just mute. He's not deaf. At least we didn't hear him being deaf, right? But why are we doing hand gestures? Yeah, he is old. Yeah, okay, maybe he's just hard of hearing anyway. Have you ever done that, though, to someone who's, bl- who's blind? You just yell louder at them, right? Or you know, It's like we compensate in the wrong way. But here they are making hand gestures to a man who presumably can hear them. He just can't talk. Why are they doing hand gestures? Well, the word being used here for, or the word that was used earlier back in the temple for being mute in the Greek, kophos, actually means both mute and deaf. It can mean just mute, but it's equally usable for both purposes. In other words, it's not clear necessarily from the context in the earlier part of this chapter what really happened to him. Only now do we really understand what must have happened. You don't do hand gestures to someone who can hear you. You know, he's been deaf for nine months. They figured out what really, you know, they know his limitations by now. It's probably the case that he really is deaf and mute. He's totally cut off. But think about this for a minute. That would better explain why the family is so astonished at his answer. Because he never heard that John was going to be the name. His answer is not just odd, it's astounding to these people because it proves the supernatural origin of the name. Not only did Elizabeth come to the decision that it would be John, but so did a husband who could have had nothing, no opportunity to know what she just tried to name that child. 
And therefore, the assumption is they both got it from some higher source, supernaturally. And then, upon hearing him give the same name, we'll read next week that he'll receive his voice back in that moment. What a wonderful lesson. Don't miss this. It would seem that God was determined to receive the glory and the praise that Zacharias should have given him in the temple, but withheld from him and instead asked for proof, showed a doubting heart in God's Word. And so God is not going to be put to the test. He's not going to produce proof because a man demands it. And because Zacharias denied God the glory he deserved while he was in the temple, he silenced him. And then here's the beauty of God's plan. He used that very silence as a way of gaining that glory back. So that when the time came to name that child, the crowd would now know that it was God's glory that produced that child. It was God's power that produced the child and now even His name. And God would receive the rightful, the rightful credit that Zacharias denied Him. You know, this is exactly how God deals with us. And I want you to be aware of the fact that we are His creation. We exist for His pleasure. He takes pleasure in us, but He created this world for His own glory. And when we, by our nature, doubt His Word, or when we fail to give Him the glory for His work in our lives, or when we bring shame upon Him and grieve the Holy Spirit by our disobedience, God is going to find ways to discipline us for our errors, and in His sovereign way, He will often use our discipline to bring Him glory in the end, the glory He was denied by our errors. Now, if I have a choice in bringing Him glory, (laughs) either by getting it right the first time or by letting Him discipline me and my discipline becomes opportunity for glory, I choose the first. If I know what I'm doing, if I have any thought about it, I'm going to choose the first. How much better is it to give God glory through obedience than through disobedience? Because keep in mind, and make no mistake, He will get His glory one way or the other. Remember what God said concerning obedience versus the the dead religious practices in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed better than the fat of rams. I would argue that's my vote. We'll go back into Luke next week. We'll pick up a course and hopefully finish the chapter next week. And in this week to come, as we get ready for communion, I guess, we'll start communion here in a moment. In the week to come, I would encourage you to look for more opportunity to bring Him glory, first through obedience, through praise in His name and giving others an opportunity, opportunity to join with you in that, and to recognize the power and the sovereignty of God in all things to include in our salvation. And to Him go the glory. Father, I do give You praise and thanks again for the Word of God, for Your Holy Word, for the opportunity, Father, to come before You and study it, for the privilege, Lord, to speak it, for the opportunity, Father, to learn from it. Father, so easy is it for us to fall back into the busyness of our world to keep to that master rather than to you, to think of ourselves as fulfilled and successful and and accomplished because our calendars make us look that way. Father, let us begin to measure our righteousness not on the basis of what we do and how the world sees us, but I pray, Father, we would measure it on the basis of Your Word alone and how closely, Father, we mirror it in our lives. And let that conviction, Father, do its perfect work. 
And Father, as we go to communion, and as we turn this time over to You in remembrance of Your sacrifice on the cross, I pray, Father, that we would have the correct heart, the right attitude, Lord, the correct perspective. Knowing, Father, that the sacrifice You gave us on the cross is one we can never equal, but yet it stands for us, Father, as that example of how we should live our lives every day in sacrifice, in service, knowing, Father, that we must for a time go through trial and persecution just as You did, so that one day, just as You are, we may be glorified and be in Your presence. And we thank You, Father, for that chance to remember. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.